Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so happy you are joining us. This is episode 84. We are coming at you at uh, 3 o'clock Pacific time on Sunday, July 19th, 2020. I'm your host, Terry Plecknett. Joining me, as always, Todd Plecknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, how's it going, guys? Excited for this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm watching a lot of Bergman's Bergman movies for my Bergman box set. Curiously enough, I got a text from Adam Daly today of the Adam Daly Live podcast and the Red and Brown podcast, and uh, he sent me a picture of all the criterions he bought at the half-price sale. So... You know, that's a that's a victory, right? That that we got them buying Criterions. I think so. I think so. I have a new Criterion showing up this week. Marriage Story. That was one of the ones that he bought, and one of the ones I was thinking about buying, but decided not to. Yeah. But it is, it's not too late. Right. Well, it's the only way you can have it on, uh, like, a physical copy of it. Otherwise, you just have to go off of Netflix. That's true. A lot of people say physical media is dead. No, no. Give it a, another couple years. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thank you guys so much for, for listening. Make sure that you're uh, subscribing, rating, reviewing. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. And starting this weekend, we're also on Pandora. So if you Ooh. listen to your podcast on Pandora, you can catch it there. Trying to get it out there as many places as we can. See if we can uh, build an audience up. And the way we do that is by you guys telling people about it, subscribing, following, whatever your app asks you to do, and then leaving a rating, leaving a review. Uh, that helps it boost up the list, so please do that. All right, uh, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having a Free State Lager in honor of uh, summertime and my journey to the liquor store this week. Couldn't be more excited. Between the Criterion nice. half-off sale and the liquor store run, uh, that I'm, I'm spent this month. Out of money. <laughs> Todd, how about you? This is uh, some dark rum with apricot nectar and cranberry juice and a maraschino cherry. And it looks kind of weird, but uh, it tastes good. Well, that's the important part. The cherry's the it important It does look part. weird. How to have the cherry in there. Yes. It almost looked like a Bloody Mary when you held it up. I don't have any cellar. Almost. That's true. That's true. Or any uh, beef sticks or gigantic prawns. Exactly. Yeah. I've yeah. never had a better Bloody Mary in my life than the Bloody Mary Todd made me in Vegas two years ago. I don't think Is I made you a Bloody only Bloody Mary? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make you a Bloody Mary. Yeah, but you you mixed something. He made you buy a Bloody Mary. (laughs) Did you? Well, okay, obviously my memory's a little shot, but I I remember having a very good Bloody Bloody Mary and you were there. So just, you know, take credit when it's given. All right. All right, well, uh, I I got this beer um, simply for for the name. This is out of Sasquatch Brewery in uh, Portland. This is their Mouth Pillow Hazy IPA. It's a... yeah, it's it's got these two like dentures fighting, Ooh. doing a pillow fight with each other. 
it's pretty good. Very Rocky it's, Horror it's Picture a, Show. Yeah, yeah, it's good though. It's got it's got some some nice little uh, fruit hints in there, and uh, yeah, a very refreshing on a warm day like like today. What is warm to you? Just out of curiosity. It's like ninety here, and but we okay. have no AC, and uh, I can't have the window open during recording. So I'm gonna. This is gonna be a sweat box for this uh, for this podcast. Ooh, yeah. Well, it, the heat index here is 106 today. So, but I have AC. Yeah, you're warmer. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, you have AC. See, we I, I don't have AC in in this room right now, so it's gonna be warm. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into it. All right, uh, we're uh, gonna get started with uh, what we've been watching this week, and Todd, I'm gonna go to you first. Okay, I watched this movie. Uh, I guess it's technically a 2020 movie. It uh, premiered at Sundance last year. It's called The Lodge, and it's like this psychological horror movie by the directors and writers of Goodnight Mommy, which was a really good movie from a few years ago, and it's about uh, this family who is snowed in. At this lodge, uh, Riley Keough is like the new girlfriend to the father's play by Richard Armitage, and uh, some weird shit starts happening when when she's stuck there with the two kids, and cause she's like a survivor of this uh, suicide cult, and uh, it's really weird, really creepy. It, it has a lot of the same ticks as Goodnight Mommy. It's not quite that good, but it's a really good, solid three star, high three star movie. I think it's on Hulu. All right, all right. Uh, let's see here. Zach, how about you? Okay, I watched a couple things this week. Uh, first movie was uh, a Canopy pick, shall we say. I, I, you know, Canopy is a great resource for obscure foreign movies, and the obscure foreign movie I chose this week is a, chi- uh, a Chinese movie called City of Life and Death, directed by Chuan Lu. It was made in 2009, and it recounts the horrific events of the Japanese invasion of Nan- Nanjing in uh, 1937, right before World War II. Some people call it the rape of Nanking um, because there were so many deaths and atrocities committed against uh, Chinese civilians by Japanese soldiers. And um, this movie kind of, uh, it's shot in black and white, um, but it's really not, it, it's certainly not a pretty movie to watch. It's really graphic and pretty disturbing. Um, but I think it really gives some, uh, some really important insight into the events of this really important uh, historical event that sometimes gets overlooked in, in Western uh, history books. Um, between 100,000 and 300,000 people died. So uh, it's it's really well done. It has it, it offers perspectives of both the Chinese um, victims and uh, the Japanese uh, soldiers who are occupying the city. Um, it's a really good movie. It's not a topic explored often in Western movies, but I would encourage people to to watch it. It's sort of um, it's it maybe you could call it like a, the the the, the uh, crude way of saying it is like it's like the Schindler's List of you know Chinese history because it's such a horrible episode in its history. But but um, it's a really good movie. It's a solid three and a half star movie. The other movie I watched this week is uh, was re- recently released to Netflix, and it is a documentary called Disclosure. And it is basically um, what the celluloid closet was to LGBT represent, or excuse me, I guess lesbian and gay representation. Um, Disclosure is to uh, trans representation over the course of American cinema. And um, 
There's some really important interviews in it. Laverne Cox is in it, uh, Alexandra Billings, um, Lily Wachowski. And basically, they take a look at how trans people have been represented or misrepresented or not represented at all in uh, mainstream American media. One of the things I like about it is that it doesn't just focus on cinema. Um, some of the most uh, ubiquitous trans representation, especially in the 80s and 90s, came with um, TV shows like The Jerry Springer Show and sometimes ta uh, tabloid shows as well. Um, so the movie has a pretty broad range. Um, it's pretty, pretty critical of how trans representation has really distorted the view of trans people um, in the popular consciousness. Uh, but it does show how some recent media has taken more important um, steps to show a more uh, diverse and, um, frankly, sophisticated takes on the trans experience if there is such a thing, uh, such a monolithic thing. So it's a really good documentary. I encourage, uh, if you're a fan of Hollywood movies, if you're a fan of represent, uh, if, if you want more representation in the movies that you're watching, um, this is a really good documentary on Netflix. Again, the title is Disclosure. It is not the Michael Douglas and Demi Moore movie. I, I wish they had chosen a different title, but uh, it's a really good look at an important topic um, about representation in media today. So solid three-star documentary. All right, all right. Good. So uh, for me, I have uh, I, I watched a few things too. Um, first, I'm, I'm not going to talk much about this, but uh, I watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire this week for the first time, and it is just gorgeous, stunning masterpiece, awesome. Um, but the one I'm going to talk about is my anniversary movie for the week, which I'm a lot less eager to talk about than that, but uh, I'm going to talk about it anyways. Uh, this is from 2000, so it's 20 years old. It was nominated for three Oscars, actor, art direction, and costume design. This is Quills, uh, starring Jeffrey Rush, uh, Kate Winslet, um, Joaquin Phoenix, Michael Caine, um, Stephen Moyer, if you're a True Blood fan, he's in this for a little bit. Uh, this is the story of uh, the Marquis de Sade, who is... Um, locked up in an insane asylum and is sneaking out his very uh, uh, risque novels to the public and um, a uh, torture expert doctor conversion therapy guy played by Michael Caine is sent to the insane asylum that is run by Joaquin Phoenix to uh, to stop Desaad from uh, doing these things. Kate Winslet plays the handmaiden who helps him sneak out stuff. Um, it's a very interesting movie. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll give it, I, I'm going to give it three stars. I wasn't a huge, like, wasn't blown away by it, but it definitely had some really interesting, uh, stuff going on and really bizarre stuff at times. Uh, Jeffrey Rush is a force of nature in this, um, and, uh, seeing Kate Winslet is always a, a breath of fresh air and a young Joaquin Phoenix. This is the same year he was nominated for Gladiator. And uh, I think it, you could argue that he's better in Quills than he was in Gladiator. So, uh, yeah, three stars for me for uh, for Quills. Have you guys seen this one? Yeah. I think it's Kate Winslet's best performance. Whoa. It's a little different than she normally does, but I think it's her best. She is good in it. She is good in it. I wouldn't say best, but she is good. Um, Zach, have you seen that one? I have not. It's been on my list for a while, though. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Anything with a marquee I had to rent it. <clears throat> yeah, I had to rent it to watch it, but uh, but yeah, it's good. 
The other thing I'm going to talk about is a book that I'm currently reading. I don't read much, but and uh, when I do, I kind of slowly work my way through something. But uh, the book I'm reading right now is called Hollywood Godfather, The Life and Crimes of Billy Wilkerson. Um, and uh, it is written by his son, uh, William Wilkerson III. Um, and Billy Wilkerson is the man who uh, uh, he founded The Hollywood Reporter. And was kind of a big time player in in Hollywood in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and uh, it is it is a fascinating read. To see. I've never even heard of this guy, but uh, he kind of had his finger on the pulse of everything going on in Hollywood at that time. He uh, he wanted to be in movies and kind of started the Hollywood Reporter as a way to uh, to get back at all the Hollywood producers like Louis B. Mayer and guys like that who refused to let him in. And became one of the most influential people in Hollywood because he had the Hollywood Reporter. I was just reading a chapter of some of the friends he had, how he helped uh, get, um, oh, I'm forgetting his first name right now, but uh, Broccoli, the guy who ended up becoming the producer of James Bond, he helped get his uh, career started by making him a bouncer at one of his, there you go, Albert Broccoli. They made him a bouncer at one of his clubs, and that kind of got him in the door of Hollywood. Uh, He was also one of uh, Howard Hughes' best friends. And Howard Hughes was the one guy that he allowed to um, to see a copy of the Hollywood Reporter and uh, for you know like last edit before it would be it would print. Um, anyways, really interesting character, really shady character in a lot of ways. But uh, it, it's a really interesting read to see how much he had a his uh, his finger on everything and how you know he would make all this money and then gamble it all away. A lot of times at card tables with a lot of Hollywood elite. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's worth uh, it's worth checking out, and uh, if you've never heard of him, it's worth uh, looking looking him up. Have you guys ever heard of Billy Wilkerson? No, no. Have yeah, I I I never I never heard of him either. But I, I saw this and yeah, founded the Hollywood Reporter and uh, yeah, kind of knew everybody and was because he had such a successful publication, he was one of the most influential people in Hollywood. For a good 20, 30 year run there. So, I like this book review I'd say it's segment. Worth a read. I, th- I think we should do more book reviews. Except, you know, <laughs> when I read books like that, I usually like to start in the middle. I don't always go in order. Like, if a chapter's too boring, I'll, I'll skip it. So, I don't know if that really counts as reading. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it does. Um, what's interesting about this one, like I said, it's written by his son, and so his son went and, like, interviewed everyone that knew him, and was able to get some of these stories out of people, like, one of his best sources is his former secretary, and, and so he got all the, all the inside scoops that you normally don't hear, but yeah, uh, Hollywood Godfather, definitely, uh, definitely worth it, and that's really what he is, he's kind of like the Don of Hollywood during the 30s and 40s. All right, cool. Let's uh, let's hop into our featured reviews. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. Uh, so in in some alternate universe where COVID nineteen doesn't happen, we are geeking out and ready to talk about Tenet today because it was supposed to come out this weekend. Uh, but it didn't. It got bumped, and will probably get bumped again. And there's talk now that it might not even come out till next summer, because uh, who knows when theaters are opening back up. So we picked a couple movies 
um, that uh, one is a recent re uh, release that came out this year um, on Hulu. And one is uh, definitely a come to the stable moment where we went back and found a random movie none of us had heard of and decided to watch it and review it. So we're starting with the recent uh, movie, and that is Shirley, uh, starring Elizabeth Moss. Todd, you're the one that suggested it, so you're going to be the one that starts talking about it. Okay, it's directed by Josephine Decker. Uh, it's a story of Shirley Jackson, who is a who was a famous writer who was living in seclusion with her husband and a young couple, Rose and Fred. Uh, they agree to move in with them, but instead of having the quiet life, as which what they were expecting, they uh, uh, Shirley, uh, the the wife has to keep an eye on Shirley, and they kind of see how crazy she is, and they they are more or less used as uh, inspiration for her next book. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is amazing in Shirley. She, I've been a fan of hers for a long time, but uh, this ranks with her best performances. I think she could be uh, in contention for awards at the end of the year. She is just possessed, and she digs deep, and she has like a sick sense of humor. I, I love her character. Michael Stuhlbarg is her husband because, of course, he is. he's in all of these kind of movies. Logan Lerman and Odessa Young are the younger couple. Uh, it's not a biopic. Uh, it's sort of an unflattering look. And it's sometimes, like, baffling. Look at an artist uh, who's looking for inspiration. It's disturbing. And uh, Josephine Decker has this really unique visual style. Her last movie was Madeline's Madeline. And uh, that was a really avant-garde, kind of dizzying, micro-budget movie. And uh, there are a lot of the same uh, feel and a lot of the same visual things that she does here. She just has a better budget and uh, a more interesting story. It's a, it's a challenging movie because it's not traditionally entertaining. Uh, it's gritty and kind of hard to follow, but it's, it's it's kind of fascinating when you get wrapped up in the drama, and uh, it feels like a horror movie, and that's shouldn't it's not really necessarily a mistake because of that's uh, the way the uh, that Shirley's books were, but uh, it probably embellishes her story a little bit, but uh, it doesn't bother me too much necessarily. I admire it more than I really like it, but sometimes that's enough, and I give it three stars. All right, all right. Zach, where are you at with this one? Yeah, uh, Todd's review is a pretty, pretty, pretty good review. Um, I like a lot of what he said. First of all, I feel like this is a movie that um, should have been made ten years ago with Kate Winslet cast as uh, Shirley Jackson. However, Michael Stuhlbarg would have still played the same character even ten years ago because <laughs> you know he's the professor, right? He was the professor in Calling by Your Name. He was the professor in uh, the the Coen Brothers movie. So he's the professor. Um, sometimes he's a bad professor, other times he's not so bad, but he's a bad professor in this movie. Shame on him. Um, yeah, so, you know what, I gotta say, um, I'm not as enthusiastic about this movie as Todd is. I gotta say, I'm really getting tired of movies that, well, first of all, movies about authors that conflate depression with writer's block, okay? Is it that she's just depressed and she doesn't want to get out of bed and she's an alcoholic, or does she just have writer's block? I'm, I'm sorry, that's, that's getting really cliche and redundant at this point. I'm also kind of getting tired of movies about authors that try to, instead of doing a straightforward biography, try to um, insert the writer's like literary genre into uh, the movie. Like This movie tries to be both a biography of Shirley Jackson, although again, admittedly not a straightforward biography, as well as an homage to her literary style. And I think that's just kind of problematic. I mean, yes, it's nice to think of Shirley Jackson, these kind of grandiose romantic terms. And yeah, the movie visually looks pretty, uh, uh, you know, it's really well done. The, the camera work is good, but there's definitely some avant-garde stuff in here. 
You know, there's this subplot in the movie where Shirley uh, and this younger uh, woman, um, Rose, played by Odessa Young, you know, she's she admires Shirley's work. Um, they go on this kind of half-hearted mystery, almost like Nancy Drew Hardy Boys type thing, where, like, they have to find out the fate of this college student who magically disappeared. I mean, this is like a half-assed excuse to have something, so, some sort of um, inertia in the story instead of it just being, just kind of laying there. I think the elephant in the room is that this movie takes a lot from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mean, some of these scenes, you can't help but be reminded of the, the dynamics between Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and their kind of f***ed up relationship in that movie. Um, I also thought a lot about Fur, the uh, imaginary portrait of Deanne Arbus, that Nicole Kidman and Robert Downey Jr. movie, which also took artistic liberties blatantly with Deanne Arbus's life and, again, tried to inflate her, her aesthetic with, with the storytelling. And it just was, I don't know, it's like... I mean, this movie obviously takes some some creative liberties with with uh, uh, Shirley Jackson's life, and I think she lived an interesting enough life that we, because you know uh, she was someone who uh, suffered as a result of the philandering of her husband, who always tried to who always saw himself as more important uh, than Shirley Jackson. I read the uh, the um, uh, the obituary for Shirley Jackson in the New York Times because I was interested after this movie, and the obituary said she wrote not with a pen but with a broomstick. And she was the Virginia werewolf of seance fiction, which I think is funny. Anyway, the point is, um, I think Shirley Jackson deserves a more authentic portrait of her life and the struggles that, that um, she had. As Todd said, she had kids that are not really shown in this movie. This is sort of a, um, uh, I think, an indulgent uh, sort of take on um, th where the director is inserting her own aesthetic into what should otherwise be a compelling story. Elizabeth Moss is really good, though. I give it a reluctant two and a half stars, mostly on the basis of Elizabeth Moss's really strong performance and some awesome cinematography and set design, but this movie should have been a lot better. All right. I'm going three and a half stars. I really got into this. I really enjoyed it. Um, it, it's, it was a story that really kind of drew me in and fascinated me as I was going along. Um, and yeah, Elizabeth Moss is is amazing in this and it was fun to watch her slowly corrupt the odessa young character and and uh and turn her around like she comes in as this super clean cut girl and slowly dissolves into the madness that shirley jackson was portraying i wouldn't necessarily say she was depressed it was almost as if she was just antisocial to a max degree um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought I, I agree much more with Todd and, uh, and go even further on that. I thought it was a really, a really fascinating movie, a really interesting look. Um, and I mean, I haven't seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I barely remember anything about fur cause it wasn't worth remembering. Um, but, uh, so I didn't necessarily see how the derivativeness of it that you're saying, but, um. But I, I thought it, it was a it was an interesting look at an interesting person that I really didn't know much about and uh, and yeah I I've, I really dug the story that they were telling too. Yeah, I mean Elizabeth Moss, I think is like I mean she's doing some incredible work work that you know ten years ago I don't think people would have expected her to do like with this and her smell and. Um, uh, the Invisible Man. I mean, she's really kind of becoming the queen of like indies, 
Um, and in this movie, she's like, she looks really creepy. You know, when she smiles, it's like she, she's like maybe psychologically insane, but also like very manipulative. And I think that she is the reason to, to see this movie. If there is a reason, she is phenomenal. And I would echo Todd's sentiment that, that she should maybe be considered for an Oscar nomination. I just felt like the story in this movie really didn't go anywhere. And, um, frankly, I think it sort of did a disservice to Shirley Jackson because it was trying to do too much inserting you know, her literary genre in what should have been, I personally would have rather seen a more straightforward picture of what I think is an interesting enough uh, literary life. But that's not what the director well, wanted it, to do. And, and, and you're right, it was kind of hinting at horror, but it was almost more thriller, but also nothing ever really happened, and you weren't exactly sure what was going on, which just constantly had me fascinated. And talking about Elizabeth Moss too, you also can't forget her supporting role last year in Us as well, oh, yeah. where that which was really really good too. And you know, winning Emmys for The Handmaid's Tale. Well, there's that. <laughs> Can I also just say a strange criticism I have of this movie? I don't know if you guys noticed this. Um, okay, what was with all the cricket sounds in this movie? Like every scene had cricket sounds. It was so annoying. Like. Even if they were shot in the daytime, I feel like there were crickets and bugs and stuff in the background. Like, that had to be... I don't know if you guys noticed that. Maybe I'm just crazy. But, like, man, that would have made a fun drinking game. Every time... You know, take a shot every time you hear a freaking cricket in this movie. <laughs> that that would have been that would have been good. Am I crazy? I did not notice you didn't that notice that it? Thing. Okay. I did not no, notice it. I did it, not no. notice it either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, two and a half from Zach, three from Todd, three and a half from me. Uh, we're, we're all kind of, I mean, we're, we're right there on the thumbs up, thumbs down. I liked it much more than you guys did. Um, Terry, you I need to see like it. who's afraid of Virginia Wolf, man. What's, what's with I do, you? I do. I don't on know. There? I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of, we're going to be talking spots. about that director in a few minutes, but like, that's a great movie. It's one of the great movies of the sixties. Well, there you go. Well, let's, uh, let's get into our next one then. So our next one, like I said, was our come to the stable film. Uh, this was a movie that, as we were looking at what we wanted to do, we found a random Oscar nominee that none of us had seen, none of us really knew anything about, and hey, it happened to be streaming on Canopy, so let's watch it together and talk about it. And uh, that is from 1973, The Day of the Dolphin, uh, directed by Mike Nichols, written by Buck Henry, which is a great combo. Uh, Zach, you suggested this one. You're talking about it first. Oh man. Okay. So the reason, part of the reason we chose this movie also is that it had two Oscar nominations, two fairly inexplicable Oscar nominations, if you ask me, in 1973, which was for Best Sound and the and Best Original Dramatic Score by the French composer Georges Delarue, who did some of um, Godard's movies in the 60s. Um, really, I think actually both of those were kind of subpar in this movie. Um, I think the real reason, though, we, we watched it is because this has a pretty, some pretty huge names attached to it. Directed by Mike Nichols, written by Buck Henry, and starring the one and only Mr. George C. Scott. Um, as I texted to Todd, man, I'm so glad I watched this movie drunk because I can't imagine watching this movie sober. It was actually a pretty fun experience watching it drunk. Um, so the plot of this movie is that, uh, there is a marine biologist played by George C. Scott because of course in the seventies, if you're going to cast a marine biologist who's training dolphins, the first person you'd think of is George C. Scott, right? Um, and it's so funny because in this movie, he, I mean, you know, if you want to, if you ever wanted to see George C. Scott in a skin tight wetsuit, 
dude. I mean, this is the movie for you, man. And he has to like get out of the pool. He usually needs help getting out of the pool. Like it is, it is a great, great casting decision right there. Um, he's joined by his real life wife, Trish Vandeveer, and she plays his wife in the movie. Her name is Maggie. And together they live in Florida somewhere and they are training, um, dolphins in this kind of super top secret, uh, regiment where they are actually training dolphins to talk. Yes, I mean, again, you have to remember, this is the 1970s, okay? And this movie is not hokey at all. It's not a Disney movie. It takes this stuff, like, super seriously. So they're teaching the dolphins to talk, and one of the dolphins' name is Alpha, and the other one's name is Beta, and... And, and 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 the voice is voiced curiously enough by uh, Buck Henry, and that's actually how mm-hmm. how the dolphins sound. Five, love, uh, I just loved the dolphin talking in this movie. Like that was on fire. That was lit, man. Um, so anyway, uh, they're training the dolphins to talk. Yes, because that's what marine biologists do. And uh, word gets out somehow that the dolphins uh, not only can talk, but can also process complex sentences. Like my favorite scene in the movie when someone tells them, look, Fa, there's a shark in the pool. And then the, the, the dolphins run away, which is, uh, I mean, that was just <laughs> an awesome, awesome moment. Anyway, these evil uh, corporate secret service type people, vaguely like Watergate um, maybe influenced, they come to uh, this the, the, the habitat and they steal fa- or, uh, Alpha and Beta in what is a plot to uh, end up killing the president. As if this movie needed more, okay? You already have George C. Scott in the wetsuit. You already have the talking dolphins. Now we need a plot for the dolphins to kill the president on a yacht, carry the bomb on his head. <sighs> wow. I, this movie, I mean, if you know, Mike Nichols, man, I, you know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf wins the Oscar for The Graduate. He is the hot shit in Hollywood. Then he makes Catch-22, which is not a very good movie, but it's not, like, irredeemably bad. And then there's this. And then I read in the trivia that this this was supposed to be directed by Roman Polanski. Um, I just got... It's the 70s. And it, star Jack Nicholson. And star Jack Nicholson. It's the 70s, man. I You know what? I love the 70s. This is why 70s movies are awesome. This is an awesomely, spectacularly bad movie. Um, I, but it is hilariously bad. And uh, I, give it, I give it two and a half stars because I can't decide whether to give it four or zero. So I'm, I'm going right in the middle. But I, I kind of <laughs> love it. <laughs> oh, that's a great review. That's what, that is why we went to you first. Right there. That is why. Uh, I'll go next. I... <laughs> Where do you start? I, I got into this. I, I know, I know. I, I liked it. I'm going three stars. If, I mean, yes, as you said, there is a lot of suspension of disbelief you have to have here um, in a lot of different ways. Um, as the movie starts, I'm like, how the hell are they going to pull off George C. Scott as a marine biologist <laughs> training dolphins? I mean, it kind of works. It works enough. And uh, and you really, I, I I like how they didn't, there was no like nudge nudge wink wink moments at the camera like yeah this is crazy it's like we're taking this fully seriously and when they are all committed and uh and checked in like that then it's easy to suspend the disbelief and get into the story and i i mean i followed it i i had fun with it three stars and you forgot to mention a very young paul sorvino in this oh yeah yes paulie from goodfellas yeah. yeah, I mean, he was, he was, he was great to see. Uh, to uh, kind of looked a little bit like, uh, like if he hadn't played this part, Rob Reiner would have played this part yes. in the in the seventies. Yes. Yeah, um, it, uh, yeah, it, it was weird to see him that young. But, um, but yeah, uh, three stars. 
I, I had fun. It was a good watch. Todd, where are you? Alright, I don't know how to review the movie, honestly. <laughs> like, it, it, it tries to be like a sci-fi thriller. It tries to be like a docudrama. It tries to be like a human drama, but, like... I don't know. The the staging is like all over the place, but it almost looks like my what might have inspired like the look of Jaws. But and the music was that nomination's just odd. It was just kind of decent. It's like hard to take seriously because watching George C. Scott talk to dolphins is f***ing distracting. I I mean, it, <laughs> yes. like he is so sincere, and, but but at the same time, it's so choppy. It's like George of the Jungle talking to ape. It's like I, I don't know. I don't know what to. I don't know what to, I don't know how to how to take it. It's like Gene Wilder or something would have been a more interesting choice because it it, would, it like you needed a less serious actor to actually take it seriously. I feel like, which is kind of weird. I, I mean, I I don't I don't know whether to laugh at it or just like be bored by it. I, I give it one and a half stars, and I'm not really sure if that's like a reflection like what, of what Zach was saying. Like it could be zero or it could be like three and a half. But I, I was just, I mean I wasn't necessarily bored, but I was just like, what the hell is this? Mike Nichols is is like the most the strangest movie by like a distinguished like stage director that I've ever seen. Well, you know, to be clear, like I would be more on board with Terry about this movie. Like I would be more just embracing the the whole experience, especially under a uh, state of alcoholism. But like um, the, the 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 biggest problem with this movie, quite honestly, it, it's not even the suspension of disbelief. It's just that the movie is is goddamn boring in the first hour. Like they they have so much dolphin footage, and and it's like great. You know, dolphins are fun to watch. They're very fun. It's fun to see Alpha do like backflips and jump from pen to pen, and then when he does the walking on water shit, like that's cool to watch. A little of that goes a long way, though. It, like the, the dolphins don't even get kidnapped in this movie until the seventy-five minute mark, and this is an hour and a half long movie. Like there, there's <laughs> no story in the first hour of this movie. Um, yeah, that's the biggest flaw I have because the other shit I was into, and I gotta say, you know, Paul Sorvino in this movie. I mean, he is pretty awesome. There is a scene that he, he is on a boat with a dead body in the back, and he suggests throwing the dead body over. And I thought, man, that's Polly. You know what? That that is that is Goodfellas <laughs> right there. Goodfellas. Goodfellas was inspired by this movie. What, what, what does he say? It doesn't change the fact that he's dead. <laughs> he's still dead, isn't he? <laughs> He was your friend! <laughs> Another one of my favorite parts of this movie is when... I don't remember who says this. By the way, Edward Herman is also in this movie, too. A.K.A. Richie Rich's yeah. dad. And um, I think he says this line, but it's it's after the Dolphins have been kidnapped. And he asks George C. Scott, why, why would they want to kill him? Alpha can talk. He can go to the authorities. He could tell the authorities. He could yeah. go to the authorities and, uh, you know, turn these evil, evil, um, you know, government agents in. By the way, I thought that this movie was, I said, it's like a mixture of four movies. It's Flipper meets All the President's Men meets Arrival meets Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Not many movies you could, you know, describe, the, <laughs> you know, using those movies. <laughs> uh... And then there are a little, little bit of Goodfellas with, you know, the body on the boat. Yeah, yeah. Or Dexter. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. The boat just needed to be called the slice of life. Uh, yeah. It, it was it was a strange movie for sure. It was a very seventies movie. Um, <laughs> and then there's a little. I, bit... I, I just kept. Go I ahead, just kept sir. thinking that that in three years George C. Scott went from playing Patton to teaching dolphins to talk. It just yeah. <laughs> Like I said, like Gene Wilder would have been would have been a really interesting 
uh, lead in this movie, but George C. Scotty, I he could... would have made it goofy though. He would even if he took it seriously, it would have been goofy. Like this is Maybe isn't this like that. the same year Willy Wonka happened? Like Willy Wonka talking to dolphins, really? Patton talking to dolphins. <laughs> yeah, but at least that doesn't make it goofy. The, this movie needed to be needed to be serious and taken seriously for it to even be considered halfway decent. But instead, it's distracting. So who who would be who would have been the actor that would have made it? Which would have made you actually take it seriously and not just be, you know, on one of the extremes? John Wayne. Jeez. <laughs> have it be have it be like robert duvall i mean this is in between the two godfather movies have have a have a hagen in there and uh talk i don't know i i really don't know everyone it would have and someone i'd never seen before doing this maybe like robert redford like this is the same year as the sting i could see redford doing it so, uh, George C. Scott was paid $750,000 to do this movie, which, you know, in 2020 money is like, what, $20 million? Like an absurd amount of money. Okay, so he was having fun on set, I'm sure. Apparently, Mike Nichols said this was the worst directing experience of his entire career, and it's part of why he stopped directing movies for the next 10 years. He made one movie after this before he took a complete break and went, went back to theater. Um, and then in the 80s, resurrected his career a little bit with Silkwood. Um, I, I wanted to also just say another one of my favorite scenes in this movie was when they have the press conference with the with the like the five white dudes that come and they sit on on the dock and one of them is French and and he says does the dolphin feel uh philo- does he have a philosophical position on being what is being to him what does being here mean and like this movie has a strange fascination with french existential philosophy as well like if you watch the end of this movie it's very i think it's very french in a way i mean i there's this movie could not be remade today you know we sometimes do like recastings you could not capture the essence of what makes this movie so great um anywhere today So Although, a couple other notes about this uh, from the from the uh, IMDb trivia page. So yeah, Roman Polanski was supposed to direct this, and this was a film that he was scouting locations for when Sharon Tate was murdered. So that that's interesting. Also, uh, this is uh, said to be Tracy Morgan's favorite movie. Really? I think that's about all you need to know to know about this. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I did not know that. That's fascinating. <laughs> I mean. The, I, th- I mean, think about it. What, what would be better, like George C. Scott or Brian Fellows, doing uh, di- leading this movie? I could see Brian Fellows from SNL doing this. I'm Brian Fellows. I wonder if Mike Nichols really was on drugs making this movie, though, because there were some scenes that were so, they didn't make any sense. So, like, for example, after the dolphins are kidnapped, everyone, George C. Scott and all this crew, it's not, you would think when your dolphins are kidnapped, hey, let's go find them, especially if they have an idea of where they are, but they don't. They actually just stay on the island and take a nap. Like, okay. (laughs) And... There's another scene where maybe I missed this because again I you know I can't I can't explain my you know I can't defend my state a few days ago when I watched it but did Alpha come back to the island like wh- why were they dragging that dolphin back into the water after the dolphins had been kidnapped I thought that was a third dolphin because here's there was, a, pro- there was here's, a third dolphin here's the problem with this movie is all dolphins kind of look the same so it's very hard to tell one dolphin from the other in fact why did I thought the bad guys put the, the put the mask on Alpha why did they put it on Beta 
That makes no sense because Beta couldn't really talk the way that Alpha could. They put it on both. Did they? They both could. They yeah. They both could. But uh, Beta was the one that went to the president's uh, yacht. But they both could uh, obey commands. I think that was it. They could both obey commands. Fire but Alpha was the only one that. Alpha was the only one that could talk. I love that. That's Buck Henry. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Like we said, this is on Canopy. If any of this sounds interesting, George C. Scott talking to dolphins, um, in, in a wetsuit, in a wetsuit. Yeah. And and I think uh, Edward Herman. I think more people know is like Lorelai Gilmore's dad than uh, than, than Richie uh, Riches. Uh, okay, but, I think, yeah. uh, maybe. Or no, Edward Herman. <laughs> I said yeah, Edward Herman. Yeah, I, th- I think more people know him from Gilmore Girls than will know him from... Ricky I don't know. Rich. Let's make that a trivia question on the Almost Sideways, at Almost Sideways, hashtag influencer Twitter page. What role do you know Edward Herman from? Do you know him from Richie Rich, from Gilmore Girls, or from Day of the Dolphin? And I bet we're going to get a variety of responses there. I'll make sure to put an other on there as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, Okay. Uh, let's move on. All right. Uh, since we reviewed two movies, we're skipping a uh, spotlight segment and going straight to power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Zach won our, our uh, power rankings game last time, so he got to pick our power rankings for this episode. Zach, tell us what we're doing. We are doing the top movie Karens. So, or so you know, Karen is a, a, a phrase that has taken over the culture in 2020. Uh, according to Urban Dictionary, um, it is the stereotypical name associated with rude, obnoxious, and insufferable middle-aged white women, um, especially when they call the police or demand to talk to the manager because they don't like, uh, you know, uh, how how you're behaving. They don't like the way you're looking, especially if you happen to be African-American or not white. And uh, there are a lot of uh, fun, uh, good uh, Karens in movies and TV that uh, deserve attention. The, the definition I kind of went along with was uh, confidently ignorant. I like it. That that that's that's like like ignorant to to just kind of society in general, but you're very confident about that ignorance, and you're out there with it, and not you don't really care who knows that you're ignorant. <laughs> so, but there's like a lot of speculation that these people are actually Karens, though, right? Like you're like th- I found this list incredibly hard to like brainstorm at all. Hey man, I just yeah, thought it was it was tough. I thought like you know, middle-aged white woman um, with a superiority complex, um, <laughs> wielding her privilege, and probably calling the police on you if she had the opportunity to. Yeah, so there's speculation. So we're just making shit up, essentially. Exactly. Pretty much. Pretty <laughs> okay. much. That's why okay. it's fun. So just so that's clear. <laughs> yes. All right. All right. Uh, I think I'm gonna go first. Which might bury me, but I'm gonna do it anyways. Um, so uh, yeah, this was this was a tough list, and so I went with I was looking at people that, you know, there there are potential racist undertones to them, people who don't necessarily, or or maybe people who are just just ignorant in general to different things and are just you look at that you are out there and no one really relates to anything you're saying. Um, <clears throat> 
and uh, and yeah. So I went with my number five is probably the least uh, the least like definition Karen, but I I went with it anyways because I thought about it and I really just wanted to talk about this movie and this character. And so I'm going with uh, the character of Ellen, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal in A Way We Go. Oh. Um, this is yeah. This is a Not this a movie one. I hadn't thought about in a long time. Uh, this stars John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph. Uh, they get pregnant and they go around to their friends, just kind of saying, seeing them, saying hi, learning more about them. Really, almost every other woman in this movie you could potentially classify in this in this uh, category. But the craziest one is Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, their their family they have a communal bed. Uh, she refuses to have a have a stroller for her daughter because she wants to hold her. Why would she push her away? And she like thinks it's like child abuse to keep a kid in a stroller because you're pushing your child away from you. Um, that that sounds like something a Karen would do. Um, so uh, yeah, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Away we go. Crazy character. Really just brashly weird. I'm going number five. See, I like that one because it's not an obvious Karen, but she's probably um, posturing in a lot of ways and and shielding her racism because she does say some racist shit in that movie, if I remember correctly. And she also she's writing that fine line of okay, is she is she like a Karen or is she like a hippie? You don't really know. Like, there's there's that real fine balance that she has there, and and uh, yeah. By the way, Maggie Gyllenhaal's um, best performance. Best best part of that movie too, awesome performance. That's ridiculous. I, I love that movie. It was a it's a great movie. Uh, all right, uh, we're going to Todd next. All right, so the first thing I thought of because I just watched it like a week and a half ago, and I think it was nominated for a Spirit Award. It's called this movie. It's a movie called Greener Grass, and it's written, directed, and starring these two ladies, Jocelyn DeBauer and Don Luby, and it's basically built around two Karens. They're like these suburban soccer moms who are, like, competing against each other throughout the movie uh, to see who's, like, the better mom. And, like, the, what, their kids, like, uh, they're, like, test scores and their kids, like, uh, soccer games and stuff. Like, they use, like, uh, like uh, points or whatever to, to see who's, like, being the better mom. They, but they are unbearable company. They look, they look like Karens. They act snooty even though they don't deserve to. And a lot of my list ended up being, like, suburban moms and wives in which uh, i think really fits the category anyway yes. but uh th- this movie is like an hour and a half of watching two karens uh, with each other and it is uh, it's pretty excruciating but it's actually really funny at the same time and i, I just kind of wanted to talk about the movie because it was just so ironic that i watched this like right after zach came up with the category i like it i like it the uh po- All right. the poster- it's, it's always good to pick pick random movies that no one's ever heard of yeah, except we have nothing to say. Great pick, Todd. Yeah, greener grass. I love that. Um, but I will say though that the definitely poster... a better movie than Away We Go. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Uh, I, oh, that's an interesting take. I will say the poster of this movie kind of looks like Terry's beer because it has a mouth on it with braces. I think. Yeah. Yeah. How do you find these movies, man? <laughs> it was nominated for a Spirit Award. I think it was like best first screenplay. It was a, it was on my Netflix queue under the save section, then it popped into the actually available section. Well, the the suburban route, the suburban mom route, is a good route. I I agree with you there. Um, 
Uh, so my list, uh, I mean, I, this was, you know, Todd said watching Greener Grass was excruciating. These last two weeks have been excruciating for me because I've just been thinking of which Karens to pick. There's so many. And um, I tried to give extra points to middle-aged white suburban white women that actually somewhere in the movie say they call the police or actually do call the police. So that was somewhat uh, important to me. Um, my number five is, uh, if we're talking about the Spirit Awards, uh, this is a movie that uh, did pretty well at the Spirit Awards last year. It's also a movie that we happened to talk about last week, and that is Uncut Gems. I'm going with Adele Dazeeb herself, Idina Manzel as Dina. Because, okay, you know, she is this suburban housewife who has a lot of privilege, a lot of money. She's pretty miserable. She seems upset all the time. And um, at the end of the movie, her last line in the movie is after Adam Sandler's son is like, oh, yeah, that's my dad. He met Kevin Garnett. That's so cool. And she's watching it on the TV with her kids. And she's like, Eddie, I can't think. And then she says, Amy, he was naked in a trunk. I'm calling the police. If your character's line in the movie is, I'm calling the police, that probably means she's a Karen. And I think Dina is definitely a Karen in Uncut Gems. That's a horrible pick. Why is that a horrible <laughs> pick? I don't think if I don't think she fits at all. No. She she's, a, all. she's a suburban housewife who calls the police. Yeah, she okay, calls she the police because her husband was kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> And just called in a panic saying, leave the house now. You got to get out. Go to your sister's hide. Hey, you know what? She has every right to want to call the police. <laughs> That's what makes this list fun. Goodness gracious. Okay. I think Zach got like two lines into that uh, definition of Karen. And then he stopped reading and <laughs> he doesn't actually know what it means. <laughs> uh... All right, uh, my number four. Uh, this is one that um, there. You know, th this is a projection that the, the you got to think this person is a Karen. Uh, this is an Oscar-winning performance uh, from Allison Janney. It is Lavona, uh, Tanya Harding's mother, and I Tanya. Um, she is. I, I like. She walks into her own daughter's apartment wearing a wire for a news company. I mean, the, 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 she is as degenerate as you get. We'll do anything to, uh, to make a scene. And, uh, yeah, the, the, she would definitely be one that would call the cops at the drop of a hat for anything and, uh, and do some crazy crap. So yeah, Allison, Janney and I, Tanya, definitely a Karen. I like it, and, and I, I notice a lot of actresses that are repeating, like, I, I have one for Alice and Jenny coming up later, too, so, I mean, and, like, there are, like, there are, like, three or four actresses, I was like, I could pick, like, a handful of their roles. Now that you she, say... She's one of the ones in Away We Go, also. That's what I was gonna say, now that you say Alice and Janney, I feel like her character in Away We Go is more of a Karen than Maggie Gyllenhaal, but I still like the pick. Yeah. All right, All right. Todd, number four. My number four comes from the greatest show ever, Breaking Bad, and it is Marie Schrader. It's, I mean, Ooh, it's almost too obvious. Like, one. she she has the haircut of a Karen number one. She's a klepto. She looks down on others. She's definitely privileged, even though I don't really know why. Uh, her attitude definitely fits the category. She absolutely would ask to speak to the manager, and then she would steal their spoon. Uh, <laughs> she, like, it, it was one of the I first things in my head. Uh, 
Yeah, all you need to know to just to know it about Marie is the the one the one scene where uh, where Skyler just goes off on Hank when he's like, we got we gotta go with her on this, we gotta support her through this. It's like, oh yeah, she's the one that needs supporting right now, and she just spells out like she is a Karen. Yeah, that's a great pick. I thought about putting her on there too, but I went with no TV. Yeah, you know, all these people who are saying, you know, Skylar White is a Karen or Skylar White is someone we're going to trash and criticize. Have you watched the show? Have you watched Marie? Did you just completely forget about Marie when you were trashing Skylar? Like, Skylar doesn't actually go to the police. She's, you know, eventually she says, yeah, by season five, she's like, yeah, let's not actually go to the police. Marie is like, yeah, let's let's go to the police. And uh, yeah, frequently. Even though her husband is the police. Even though her husband is the police. Skylar is a badass. I think Marie. Marie just is. Yeah, she's just a Karen. I want to meet Skylar and Marie's parents. Like, I want to see what raised that. <laughs> that was a missed opportunity, yeah. Vince Gilligan. <laughs> Maybe that'll be another spinoff. There we go. There we go. <laughs> All right, Zach, number four. All right, so we're now going into the annals of film history with my number four pick. This is a Karen that is so legendary, she actually has an iconic movie score that plays whenever she appears on screen. And uh, I feel like it's the perfect music that should accompany any Karen that comes on screen. And it's a it's a little it's a little ditty that goes da 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 da, and it is Miss Gulch from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> You know, Miss Gulch is the uh, school marm, shall we say. She rides her bike in a very kind of upright fashion, and she is very upset that uh, Toto the dog bit her, apparently. And um, you know what? Uh, She not only complains to Auntie M and Uncle Henry, but she threatens to go to the sheriff because she says that uh, she wants to go to the sheriff to make sure Toto is destroyed. And she then will take the whole farm from the Gales. And uh, Auntie M in, re- in response says, I've been waiting 23 years to tell you what I think of you. And now as a Christian woman, I can't say it. Which maybe gives Auntie M some Dorth- uh, some uh, uh, Karen points as well. But Miss Gulch is the ultimate Karen. She, you know what? She may not have a, a lot of privilege because in Kansas, people aren't very, aren't very wealthy in particular. But uh, she does have connections with the sheriff's office. And uh, yeah, she's a Karen. The, maybe the first movie Karen. That's an inspired pick. Uh, that's a, that is a great pick. I, I can't argue with that. Okay, uh, number three for me. Uh, I feel is kind of cheating, but, I mean, you can't argue the validity of it. Uh, this is the character of Connie Kendrickson, played by Ashley Atkinson in Black Klansman. I mean, mm. if you are the wife of a guy who runs a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan and try to bomb a, a black activist leader's house, you're probably a Karen. I feel like I'm telling a Jeff Foxworthy joke here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, she's she is like the definition of, of a Karen. If, if, you, if you chant wildly at watching Birth of a Nation and throw popcorn at the screen <laughs> while laughing hysterically, then you might be a Karen. Um, the, yeah, this character is the definition of it. So, yeah. I, I mean, is it cheating to go with, with the wife of a clan member? I, I don't know. So, but I'm going with it. Number three, <laughs> Ashley Atkinson playing Connie Kendrickson, Black Klansman. 
That is a great pick. I had completely forgotten about her character until you just mentioned that, but that is an inspired pick. Congratulations. That is that is very, very well done. Thank you. I thank you. It was one of the first ones I thought of. Like but when when you came up with it, I'm like, well, I can go with the girl from Black Klansman. I mean, that's kind of an easy one. <laughs> that's the layup here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Todd, number three. Okay, my number three is another Alice and Janney character. Uh, yes. And it is Brenda McGuff uh, from Juno, because obviously, you know, she uh, verbally abused the ultrasound tech and got us kicked off the premises. Uh, here's a little exchange she has with her. She says, she says, uh, what's your job title exactly? I'm an ultrasound technician, ma'am. Well, I'm a nail technician. I think we should both stick to what we know. Oh, you think you're so special up there? You get to play picture pages. Well, my five-year-old daughter could do that. And let me tell you, she's not the brightest bulb in the tanning bed. So why don't you go back to night school in Mantino and learn a real trade? I mean, and that is about his character. She's more of a hard-ass than anything, but her daughter is also named Liberty Bell. Like, that's about as arrogant of a thing as you can do. And she throws shade that's at her. That's what I was going to say. She throws shade yeah. at her during that little uh, berating of the ultrasound tech. And that, I don't know. That, that, when, I, when that little uh, monologue came into my head, I was like, yeah. Brenda McGuff. And then Juno says, Bren, use a dick. I love it. It's, exact, it's exactly what a Karen needs. Encourage I think Allison Janney and Margaret is probably a Karen as well. Yep. Probably. <laughs> and then she gets hit, you know, hit by a bus. You don't get to see much of her. Yeah, yeah. That's a great pick. That's a good pick. And then I have right, Mar- Allison Janney coming up too. No, I don't. Okay, I'm sorry. I wish I did though. <laughs> Zach, number three. All right, my number three is, um, you know, we got some good uh, girlfriend characters, girlfriend wife characters who definitely fit into this category. And, um, you know what, if we're talking about race relations, fractured race relations, maybe we go back to the 1970s, maybe the, the, the culture in Northern Virginia is particularly hot on the football field. That's right, I'm going with Kate Bosworth as Emma, the girlfriend of Gary Bertier, all 45 years of Gary Bertier, in Remember the Titans. Because, you know what, she is someone who apparently is very loyal to Gary. I mean, she calls and demands that he say I love her on the phone when he's at training camp at Gettysburg. But when he gets back and he has he has become bros with Julius, and he's even making, oh, that's a yo mama joke, that's a mama joke, um, she breaks up with him, like, pretty much right away. And she says to him, and I quote, I think it's going to take me a little longer than you like. Uh, interesting footnote about this movie. Um, Gary, uh, uh, so Gary did really have, Bertier really did have a girlfriend, except his girlfriend's name was not Emma, it was Becky. Why didn't they, why didn't they keep the Becky name? That, that's, that is a real question mark of that movie. And, um, you know what, to get, to break up with Bertier at the time of his accident because he's friends with Julius, that is like a dictionary definition of a Karen or a Becky, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's off the charts, Karen. That's a great call. And it reminds me that we need to deep dive that movie before the end of this year. There, there are plans in the works. Yes. <laughs> Didn't we do a recasting of that at one point? Did I don't we? Know. Did we? I think we, we did. Might have. It's possible. I'll Very have to possible. go back through and, uh, and check. All right. My number two is probably the... Uh, the most blatantly obvious, like once you think about the character that in, in the movie, it's like, yes, this is like what it, what a Karen would look like in a movie. Um, 
and it is the character of Vivian Mitchell, played by Kirsten Dunst in Hidden Figures. Uh, this is uh, the white blonde woman that is the boss to uh, Taraji P. Henson and Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet and uh, all of the um, the whole uh, group of uh, black women that are the uh, calculators for for NASA. Um, she is constantly talking down to them. She is constantly showing that she's superior to them. Um, and, uh, and until finally Octavia Spencer works her way up by working harder than everybody else. And uh, one of the best lines in the whole movie is they, they meet in the bathroom, which is a monumental thing because they had segregated bathrooms up until then. And she looks at, Kristen Dunst looks at Octavia Spencer and says, I really have nothing against y'all. And Octavia Spencer's response is, I believe you think that, and leaves. And, uh, and uh, it, it's, it, it's perfect. But she is, like, as I was thinking, that was another one I thought of pretty quick, as this is a, the, the picture of what a Karen is. So Vivian Mitchell, Kirsten Dunst, Hidden Figures, number two. Yeah, the overlap might not ever happen here, Zach. Yeah, it's it's not it's not looking very good. It's it off the heels of your uh, Ashley Atkinson pick for Black Klansman. This is the second straight Karen on your list that I don't even remember her character in the movie. Maybe maybe I've just become so immune to Karens that I don't even notice them anymore. But uh, yeah, that sounds like a good pick. It's a good pick. Trust me, it's a good pick. Well, I think well, I mean the the problem with this we're we're picking all like supporting characters, and so they're all going to be these like random ones that are in our heads. Except for my number two, yeah. which is <laughs> of course an American Beauty, Carol Burnham, because uh, she is just—I feel like she's Karen incarnate. Like she's absolutely entitled. She never lets anyone get the upper hand on her. She always is looking down onto everybody, especially customers and her husband. I I'm surprised she didn't like report the gyms for running too fast down the street and disturbing your plants or something. Like, because that is something that she absolutely would have done. Uh, yeah, Carol Burnham was uh, like—I mean. I, I thought that was kind of an obvious one. I, I'd be surprised if, like, none of the three of you actually mentioned her. Well, the only thing that disqualified her for me, because I thought about her, too, is she talks about how at, uh, when she's giving that impassioned speech to Thora Birch, she says, Do you know what it's like having to live in a duplex? Which is very Karen of her, but the fact that she actually <laughs> did live in a duplex sort of mitigates any kind of privilege she might have had earlier in life. I don't know about that, but okay. Your point, hey, I, I, mean, I see your point. There are so many movie Karens out there that we have to get down to the pins and needles, all right? We're getting very micro-specific. But it's a good pick. It's see, a good pick. See, it's ma good pick. main characters are not, like, are not easy to pick in this. That's we, true. We have to the shit on these characters that we obviously we don't care about because if we did, they wouldn't be the main characters and we wouldn't like the movie. <laughs> I feel like if someone were to write a book about movie Karens, uh, Annette Bening's picture would be maybe on, like, the back cover. <laughs> her holding her uh, her matching... Uh, yeah, the matching... Uh, yeah, exactly. And the shovel. And, yeah. and uh, garden shears. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is, like, the picture... Although, of, if she was yes. truly a Karen, she would have called the cops on the two gyms. Not yeah. a fan of the gay people next door. <laughs> Zach, number two. Okay, number two, um, I mean, we're going, you know, we are talking about iconic uh, 90s movies like American Beauty. Um, this was originally my number one. Um, but uh, when you think about privileged white women, um, look no further 
then Francis Fisher as Ruth DeWitt Bucator, the mom, a.k.a. the mom of Rose in Titanic. This is a woman shrouded in privilege. Um, she talks about how, uh, well, first of all, she doesn't believe in talking to Molly Brown because, you know, she doesn't want to, you know, uh, ladies, let's get up. Let's not talk to the vulgar American lady over there played by Kathy Bates. Um, she calls out Jack's uh, um, lodging in third class and uh, Jack memorably responds, the, the, the rats are, are fantastic. And, uh, you know, she's, she's defeated at every, at every juncture by Jack. Um, uh, and then she, you know, accosts him for not having a plan once he gets to America on, on God's good earth. Right, ma'am? And um, and then, you know, worst of all, uh, she actually isn't even that rich. I mean, she says that the money is running out, and that is why Rose has to marry uh, uh, Cal. And so, um, in the end, the most Karen line, maybe in the history of movies, is when they're getting out, getting ready to go on the lifeboats, and very few survivors, everyone's freaking out. And then she has the audacity to ask, will the lifeboats be seated according to class? And I think that's that's the moment, if you watch the movie, when Rose thinks, yeah, I should probably just abandon Billy Zane and go with uh, Leo. I think her mom solves the question right then and there. That is a great call. That is a great call. It's one I thought of and then forgot about before I could put it on my list, so... Yes, I'm glad it was mentioned. All right. My number one. Uh, it is another Oscar-winning performance. Not only an Oscar-winning performance, it is a title character. Ooh. I am going with Driving Miss Daisy as my number one. <laughs> I mean, she may not be middle-aged anymore, however... I mean, she almost called the cops on Morgan Freeman because he ate a can of, what was it, like a can of sardines or something, and he brought a replacement one the next day. Oh, salmon. It was a can of salmon, and he brought a replacement the next day, and so I guess he could keep his job and not have to go to prison. Uh, the amount that she fought, you know, just him, him being around to help her out, and she is, yet... She still wants to go here like Martin Luther King speak because she's all for progress. But, you know, he stole this and I knew he was a, he was a problem. Uh, yeah, she is like the ultimate, the ultimate Karen. And I don't I mean, she's one that kind of has a character arc, too. I don't know if she fully changes or if she just really likes Morgan Freeman's character. I don't know. But Miss Daisy is my number one. Wow. I love it. That's a great pick. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hard one to argue with. <laughs> I think the problem was I kept on thinking middle-aged, and I forgot that uh, there are a lot of older Karens out there, too. And, um, yeah, it kind of begins. In, I, first of all, I love that you know the details to that, because, I mean, I don't know if I'd want to go back and rewatch that movie, but uh, that is a... That's, I love that movie. It's, it's an such awesome a sweet pick. movie. Yeah. Spike Lee doesn't think so. Yeah, well... You always listen to when someone's driving somebody, right? That's what he told Stephen A. Smith. Uh, Alright, Todd, number one. Alright, as soon as I thought of this one, it had to be number one. It's a little obscure, but it's the character played by Mary McCann uh, in Little Children. Her name is Mary Ann. I could have just included, like, the whole book club... But uh, Marianne, number one, like, she is, like, the royal bitch of a suburban Karen. She's the one that's like, oh, 
Great, so now cheating on your husband makes you a feminist? Yeah, uh, she cheats on her husband, takes his money, and then kills him with rat poison? She's just an annoying snob. Like, uh, she's like this entitled royal bitch of a, of a suburban mom, wife, and, uh, I don't know, she says something about castrating somebody at one point, too. I don't know. I, I feel like, you see her on the street, I would want to steer away from her. She is, she's crazy. It's hard not to imagine a, a more caring character than that one. Even though she's only in, like, two scenes. Like, it was, like, it was stuck in my head when, once I thought of her. Marianne from Little Children. You guys remember that character? Not at all. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the whole the book, book club, the, I mean, I mean... The, I mean, you could even make an argument Kate Winslet's a Karen in, in a lot of ways, too, but Marianne is the best one. Alright. Zach, number one. What'd Mary, you land on? Marianne's a pretty good name for a Karen, too. Um, I, I, I like the pick. It makes me want to rewatch the movie, as I should have done a long time ago. Um, okay, so my number one pick originally was going to be Rose's mom, but then I thought about a movie where some critical events happen as a result of Karen calling the police. Um, and that movie is The School of Rock, and the character is played by Sarah Silverman. She plays Patty, who is Ned, the real Ned Schneebly's girlfriend. And if you watch uh, School of Rock, the first scene, she comes uh, bursting into the scene, very Karen. She is saying, Dewey is a loser! Be like me. I work at the mayor's office, and Ned does the most important thing of all. What, a temp? Great line by Jack Black. Patty uh, is really stuck up in the School of Rock, and once she finds out that Dewey has been um, taking on Ned's identity and teaching at Horace Greeley Prep School, she calls the authorities, and those parents are not happy. I mean, it's a little ironic that Sarah Silverman is my number one Karen because she does not give off any Karen vibes, but that's maybe the brilliance of the role is just how uh, how perfect she is in it. And uh, yeah, she's, she's the ultimate Karen because a Karen enables the police to come in and, and, and ruin everyone's day. Yeah, you should have kept the Titanic pick as your number one. You think so? That's I don't good, know. That's I, a the, good pick. That's <laughs> a good pick, but Francis Fisher and Titanic is so much better. All right, well, well me. I dig it. We also <laughs> should deep dive School of Rock at some point. Yes. Well, yes. Yes. Absolutely. All right, uh, time for some honorable mentions. Uh, I've got a few here. Um, so I kind of got them in, in like... Uh, in like uh categories here so i've got a karen who's kind of realizing she might be a karen and is starting to try and change and that's uh katherine hepburn and guess who's coming to dinner um i've got uh i've got white trash karen which is margot martindale in million dollar baby I which is another her. one that i thought of like almost instantly i don't even know it's, she's a, good in that movie. it's, a, it's a good one character oh, yeah, actress. She, she plays hillary swank's mom wow don't marry us we don't want to we don't want anything to do with you yeah uh, and then um, I have I have the uh, the going to be like gro- going to end up being Karens, and that is all of the Heathers and Heathers. Like they nice. will be Karens one day, um, and then possibly the this almost was my number one, but end up in my honorable mention instead because it goes back a little too far, and I think it's kind of cheating to call someone a Karen who grew up during uh, pre Civil War, and that's Scarlett <laughs> O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, nice. that's a that's that that should that should be a top five. I mean, that it, it, legendary yeah, it, it was, Karens. It was that, either going to be number one or not on my list. But <laughs> I, like I said, it's kind of cheating to say a pre Civil War character. She can't exactly uh, is, call the cops. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, she can't. Well, but yeah. Anyways, that was so. Those are my honorable mentions. Todd, what do you got? Uh, okay, so I have, from Friends, I have Rachel Green. Uh, she's an absolute Karen. And her sister, Jill, played by Reese Witherspoon, as, as well as every other character played by Reese Witherspoon, in char- including Big Little Lies and the rest of the Monterey Five. Uh, those are all absolute Karens. I have Mrs. Bueller in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I mainly because she looks like the definition of a Karen. I have Hannah Gill in The Truman Show, which is uh, the actress who played Meryl. That that lady is an absolute Karen. I also have so, so not 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 Meryl, the actress who played Meryl. I like it. Yes, that's an important yes. distinction to make <laughs> because she does call out to the camera, "Help!" Uh, I also have Edie Finner in in uh, The Usual Suspects. I have Corinne Ooh. Maloney uh, because it sounds like Karen, and it's also because uh, she, I mean I. I it's a Leslie Mann. That's another great Karen actress, and uh, that's it from obviously from Big Daddy. And I have Naomi LaPaglia from The Wolf of Wall Street, played by Margot Robbie, because she won't even deal with the golf course people and have to pay in cash. I, she's just uh, was a spoiled brat, and she was going. You know, she would. She's probably too young to be a Karen, but she would be a Karen. All right, all right. Uh, Zach, what do you got? All right, this was one where probably the honorable mentions was more fun than coming up with the real list. I went with um, Michelle Pfeiffer in Hairspray. She's the racist uh, TV producer, I think. Uh, Shearsha Ronan in Atonement. Unintentional Karen. Very important distinction to make, but a Karen nonetheless. Young Karen. Um, Kyle's mom in South Park. I'm, I mean, they wrote a whole song about her being a Karen. I'm amazed she didn't make anyone's list. Yes. Uh, Blanche Lovell in Apollo 13. She doesn't call the police, but she calls the, the guy over to change the, the TV channel. Um, Helen in Speed, a.k.a. the lady that dies because she wants the police to rescue her, and she sacrifices herself in the process. The, the one she, that died on the steps? The one that died... No, the, the one that was trying to get off the bus because she was calling out to the cops. Okay. Um, Diane Chambers on Cheers. Uh, Bill Paxton's girlfriend, Melissa, played by part-time Atlanta Hawks owner Jamie Gertz in the movie Twister. Um, Gloria Cheney and Mrs. Doubtfire, she's the one that calls um, uh, Sally Field at work and says there's a big party going on at the house in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Then we got some TV uh, uh, Karens. We got Betty Draper from Mad Men, uh, Jan Levinson Gould from The Office, I already said Diane Chambers, um, and Miss Piggy. Uh, we have what could possibly be the only um, black Karen, and that is Trey's mom in Boys in the Hood. We have the entire cast of Sex in the City and Gossip Girl and Girls. We have Emily, Emily Kimberly, who is the character played by Dorothy Michaels in Tootsie. We have um, Mary in It's a Wonderful Life, but only when she's an old maid in a a world where uh, Jimmy Stewart has not been born. Because she's like, oh no, ah, someone save me, when he comes up and says, Mary, Mary, I miss you. Um, The uh, girl in Aladdin who says the line, I'd call his parents except he hasn't got them, in that one song. And finally, John Goodman as Linda Tripp in Saturday Night Live. Oh man, brilliant! I will say Diane Chambers is an inspired pick. That should have been in your top five. 
Pro- yeah. Probably. If I had thought of that one, I mean that—that that is the definition of privileged, right there. I like how we all focused on different aspects of what could make a Karen. Like you focused on, like Zach, you focused on like calling the cops. Todd focused on like the the suburban, suburban. side of things, and I focused on the ignorance. <laughs> There's so many complexities to a Karen. Yeah, there is. There is. Any, anyone who says it's it's culturally reductive should be listening to the segment because there's a lot of sophistication out there. All right. Well, now this now comes the impossible part, and that is predicting what Adam said. So Adam Daly, our other uh, almost sideways contributor, we always try to guess his list, see who knows him better. And I don't know if we're going to be able to do it this time, but we'll we'll give it our best shot. Um, by the way, all uh, pretty much everyone in Adam's list, I always try to not have any overlap between my list and my prediction for Adam's list. So all of these are kind of honorable, honorable mentions for me, just letting you guys know. Uh, because none of them that are on that I predicted for him have been mentioned yet. So Yeah, because uh, that's num- what I was thinking too. I was like, I have to come up with like a second creative <laughs> list for another person. Like this, this one is just so difficult. Yeah. Uh, so number five. Francis McDormand and Almost Famous. Rock stars have kidnapped my son. That That's a Karen thing right there. Uh, number four, Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side. I mean, she's, she's yeah, she's taking in a, a guy who can play football, but she's she's a Karen. Number three, Bryce Dallas Howard in The Help. Uh, that's kind of an obvious one. Number two, Sandra Bullock in Crash. Uh, that's like the most Karen person in that movie. And yeah. number one, Katherine Keener, Get Out. Interesting. All right. All right. Uh, Todd, what's your prediction? Uh, number five, I have Karen in Goodfellas. Uh, number four, Sally in When Harry Met Sally. Number three, Nora Fanshawe in Marriage Story. That was uh, um, Laura Dern's character. Number two, Miranda Priestly in The Devil Wears Prada. And number one, Carol Burnham in American Beauty. All right. All right. My- my number my number five is Karen Plucknet, not because she is a Karen, but her name is Karen, and you <laughs> that's know, what Adam, I did. My yeah, number yeah. five, you bum. <laughs> <laughs> um, number four is M- Nicole Kidman in Batman Forever, not because she is a Karen, but I want to if any if he picks anything Batman, I want to at least get a half point for it or something. <laughs> so, uh, number three, Leslie Mann is Debbie in Knocked Up, and this is forty. Number two, Laura Coyote as Laura Lee Candy Fitzwillie in Django Unchained, a.k.a. Leo's sister. And number one, I'm surprised by Terry's pick. Uh, I went with Rose and Get Out, played by Allison Williams. I think she's much more of the uh, classic Karen character. But That's a good point. No, but she That's wants to point. avoid the police. I was also thinking Elizabeth Moss and Us would have been a great Karen, too. Yeah. After we talked about it before, but... Okay. Adam Daly's list. Let's see how we did. He says, so I wanted to give myself a challenge. So all my Karens have to have their actual name be Karen too. <laughs> well, there we go. Seriously. Number five, Karen Smith from Mean Girls. Number four. And then he goes, are you kidding? If this list wasn't hard enough already, that would have been impossible. Oh, I was actually going to get one right. <laughs> yeah, you had Karen. Karen Hill. I, I, Karen and Goodfellas. I think... Uh, I think you'll, uh, I, I think that might, if that's, that could be a tiebreaker if we need it. All right. Honorable mentions. I said not too confidence in my list, so here it goes. Honorable mention. He has Helen from Speed. Yes. Um, Sally from When Harry Met Sally. Where? Uh, Cher from Clueless. 
Uh, Mrs. Potato Head from the Toy Story movies. Ooh, oh, I was thinking about Bo Peep, honestly. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, until four. Until four the fourth one. Said. Yeah. Uh, Sandra from Compliance. And uh, Dorothy Michael, played by Michael Dorsey from Tootsie. Uh, number five, uh, Kim Wallace, played by Cameron Diaz in My Best Friend's Wedding. Uh, number four, uh, Princess Buttercup, played by Robin Wright in The Princess Bride. Um, number three, older white lady in Elevator who almost died a tragic death because she didn't want anyone to touch oh her in speed. Oh my god! That is a perfect <laughs> pick! How did I not think of that? Jeez! Adam, killing it! No, uh, no, number two, that's a great pick. <laughs> number two, Regina George, played by Rachel McAdams in uh, Mean Girls. She's too young. And, She's in high school. And number one, Allison Scott, played by Katherine Heigl and Knocked Up. <laughs> I had one of his honorable mentions on my predicted. Yeah, I th- and you had the, the thought that he might go with someone named Karen. I think you win. I didn't have any. I should have had Francis McDormand on it from Almost Famous on my list. Todd also predicted that we would have under two overlaps, so I think he deserves some kind of credit for that. There there are zero overlaps, <laughs> like, period, at all. Or no, did like you say one overlap? Thing? Yeah, Todd said minus one. Yeah, no, oh, no, I under said one two, overlap. but if, you get, if, if a, there is an honorable mention that overlaps with someone's list, then it is a half. So yeah, we just don't, <laughs> still think we had zero. <laughs> not, even, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that was fun. That turned out to be a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so now I have twenty-one points to Terry fourteen, Zach thirteen and a half. All right. And Todd, you get to pick power rankings for our next uh, our next regular episode, which will be in a couple weeks. Maybe top movie chads, because isn't that the male Karen? <laughs> is it? I don't know. No, never mind. Alright. <laughs> it's time for trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Void is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. Every time for trivia, we have movies that we need to report on that we were forced to watch because of our performance on the last trivia segment, or really the, the fact that the other person won. So, Todd won last time, so he got to pick a movie for uh, me to watch and a movie for Zach to watch. Zach, you're going to go first. Tell us what Todd forced you to watch. So, originally, Todd forced me to watch uh, uh, American Pie Bandcamp, but I successfully talked him out of assigning me that because I listened to uh, Bill Simmons and Wesley Morris's podcast on 25th Hour, which, by the way, I just have to go on a mini digression here for a second. First of all, we should be uh, doing a deep dive of that movie. And second of all, we would have done a much better job of deep diving that movie than Wesley Morris, who doesn't even like the movie, and Bill Simmons, who has clearly not seen the movie in the last five years. Just note to the producer of this podcast, we, we need to be doing 25th hour deep dive. Anyway, so um, yeah, so instead I changed it to Clockers, because that's a movie that Todd has uh, urged me to see. It's a Spike Lee movie I have not seen, and uh, Wesley Morris talks about it a lot. He talks about it more on the 25th hour podcast than he does 25th hour. So I watched Clockers. It's Spike Lee's 1995 movie starring Harvey Keitel, John Turturro, Delroy Lindo, and in his first performance, Mikai Pfeiffer, who's actually the main character in the movie, he plays Strike, who is a clocker, which is someone who, kind of a low-level drug dealer who has 24 hours to uh, basically unload uh, all the crack cocaine he can to willing buyers. 
And uh, this being a Spike Lee movie, it's sort of all over the place. It's definitely a movie that looks at uh, the corruption of the police department. And Harvey Keitel plays the lead detective in the movie. Um, but this is also a movie that looks very critically at the black community and how um, a lot of these wounds are kind of self-inflicted. Um, in that sense, it feels almost more like a John Singleton movie than a Spike Lee movie in some ways. Um, it's based on a book by Richard Price, although apparently uh, Spike Lee changed the main character of the movie from the white detective played by Harvey Keitel to the Mackay Pfeiffer character. Um, and, you know, like Spike Lee movies, uh, it's all over the place. There are some good components to it. Um, there's some really strong characterization and some good performances by Mackay Pfeiffer and Isaiah Washington and Delroy Lindo of uh, Defy Blood's uh, fame. He plays Rodney, who's sort of the, the lead uh, mob, mob boss and drug dealer in this movie. But uh, it's also a Spike Lee movie, which means that it's all over the place. It's kind of unfocused. Um, it feels like uh, there are characters that are put on the side that aren't given a whole lot of plot development. What Goodfellas was to The Sopranos, I feel like Clockers was to The Wire. It's impossible to watch this movie and not think about um, how it inspired The Wire. It, maybe to some degree, I don't know, but it feels like an episode of The Wire. Um, and it does have some strong components, but ultimately it's sort of unfocused. The end feels like the exact same ending. Harvey Keitel does in this movie the exact same thing at the, as he does at the end of Bad Lieutenant. And actually, uh, Wesley Morris talks about how the ending of this movie is also similar to 25th Hour in, in some interesting ways. And that's maybe the, the most compelling argument to this movie, which is that um, the strike character in a lot of ways is a lot more flawed and tragic than the Edward Norton in, character in 25th Hour because he's a black character. And I think that makes some uh, major differences in the way we feel about it. However unfocused, it's an interesting movie. I wouldn't call it a great movie. It's a three-star Spike movie that uh, is more of a curiosity, I think, than a truly great movie um, because it occurs at a moment when Spike was trying to push back against movies like Menace to Society, movies that he felt um, were, were trying to glorify and romanticize um, black uh, life, black gang life, especially in the mid-90s. So interesting movie, not a great movie, but I'm glad I saw it. All right. Interesting. I think it's like I think his most polished narrative that he's ever done, but uh, I I can see where you're coming from, but uh, I don't know. I think it's like one of the best movies in '95, but you know. Yeah, I mean, it has it's it's you know it's like Black Clansman, it's like Defy Bloods. There are moments of greatness, but they kind of are undone by this kind of unwieldy like disorganization of the plot. And there's some plot details that I just couldn't believe. For example, the main the main murder in the movie, the sort of mulligan of the movie, I cannot believe that the person who commits that murder actually committed that murder. So when you get into the the the, the you know actual plot in the movie, there's some issues, but there are some really strong moments and strong performances in the movie. All right. All right. <clears throat> well, now it's time for me to talk about mine. So uh, Todd actually assigned me this movie to watch before we did trivia last time. Like he was so confident he was going to win that last trivia game that he came out and said, "Make sure you DVR this movie off of Turner Classic because this is what I'm going to assign you as soon as I win trivia." He didn't say that last part, but he did tell me I'm going to assign it to you soon. So. Uh, so recorded off of off of uh, TCM, and that was the 1942 movie Yankee Doodle Dandy. Um, it plays every Fourth of July, which I think is one of the reasons it's one of Todd's favorites, because his birthday is the Fourth of July, and it fe it um, tells the story of George M. Cohan, who was also born on the Fourth of July. Uh, it was nominated for eight Oscars, won three of them, including Best Actor for James Cagney. Um, 
I I thought this movie. It, it's always interesting to watch a movie like this because when you think James Cagney, you think like Angels with Dirty Faces, and you think White Heat. You know these gangster movies. He's an amazing song and dance man, and he really shows that off in Yankee Doodle Dandy. Um, I love this movie. I thought it was great. The music was really good. Um, I didn't realize that this one guy wrote all those songs as they were going through them. Um, I thought the dialogue was actually really, really fun and snappy, especially for a movie in the early 40s. Sometimes the dialogue can be pretty cheesy, but it, it was... It was good. The way it told the story, I thought, was interesting. Um, and everything was surrounding Cagney. And Cagney is just remarkable in this movie. He's amazing. And, uh, and yeah, the, the way they, they, they progress through, I mean, it, it moves along at a brisk pace. It doesn't drag at all. Um, the musical numbers are, uh, like, the staging of them and him on stage and his performance. I mean, it's as good as anybody you're going to find. And... Uh, yeah, I'm, it, I'm giving it four stars. This is a great, like, like Independence Day, 4th of July classic that we should, uh, that we should watch, like, every, uh, every time we come around to July. So, uh, thank you for assigning it to me, Todd. I love this movie. It was awesome. Yeah, I knew you would. And, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's one of those movies that, yeah, it's probably the most patriotic movie ever. And James Cagney, his birthday would, would have also been, like, a couple days ago. And, but uh, like when like over there like that that whole song and and the, how they shoot that and everything like that's just like pro- that's the most patriotic scene in any in any movie ever I feel like and yeah it's yeah different than you you pictured Cagney but uh, yeah, I lo- I love that movie too yeah the final scene of the movie is just yeah it's one it's a very patriotic moment but it's also like an incredibly moving and an inspirational moment too yeah so uh, yeah. Zach, have you seen Yankee Doodle Dandy? I have not. Oh. Well, there we go. Got to get on okay. that. Okay. You, you do, you do. It's a fun one. All right. Well, Todd, you won last time. You're hosting trivia. What are we doing? Uh, well, you guys kind of stepped on a couple of my categories. I'm going to do them anyway, just because I don't really have anything else planned. Uh, and that is, uh, we're going to have some filmography trivia. And then one category not related to filmography that... Is sort of like a tiebreaker. I'm just going to include it just because you guys sort of already stepped on these categories. So, first off, we are going to go back and forth with uh, the films of Michael Stuhlbarg. Uh, he has 24 movies, and we can't obviously include the one we, we just reviewed. So, I'm going to start with Terry. Uh, call me by your name. That's correct. A serious man. Serious Man is correct. The Shape of Water. Shape of Water, correct. Uh. Gosh, I don't know. I give up. I'm out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Jurassic Early Park. Exit was he by Zach. No, Jurassic, Jurassic World. That's not correct. Okay, didn't think so. Terry, there are 21 other answers. <laughs> oh, gosh, and I'm drawing a blank, too. Um, it's a fun one. Is Richard Jenkins next? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was something he was in, like, right after Serious Man 2. That was fairly big, and I have no idea. I'm, I can't. I got nothing. 
Alright, well, he was in three Best Picture win n nominees in 2017. You got two of them, and the other one was The Post. Mm. You also oh. had stuff like uh, Miss Sloan, Doctor Strange, Arrival, Miles Ahead, Trumbo, Steve Jobs, Pawn Sacrifice, Blue Jasmine, Hitchcock, Lincoln, Hugo, Men in Black 3, Cold Souls, Body of Lies, The, the Grey Zone, one of Zack's top five movies of all time. You know, I don't know, he, he had some others in there too. So we are tied. No, no, two, two to one, Terry. Actually, at this point, and our next one is Elizabeth Moss. She has forty-four movies, not including the one that we reviewed. So Zach starts with Elizabeth Moss. Us. That's correct. Invisible Man. Correct. Uh, her smell. That's correct. Gosh. Um, <laughs> these are horrible, Todd. Um, oh man, I know I'm missing something. I'm missing a lot of somethings. Five, four, three, two. One. Nope. Nothing. Okay, Zach. The one I love. Correct. Oh, yeah. Mentioned on this podcast a few times for some reason. Zach always brings it up. Yeah, it's a fun one. Um, she did another movie with the director of Her Smell. Uh, right, Todd? And I'm blanking on the title. It's a movie that yeah. I started to watch and really couldn't get through it's a it's a director with a three-word name uh like philip baker hall but it's not philip baker hall um do i get like a quarter point for that i mean it's like <laughs> you know it was a hard movie to watch i could i couldn't get through it all but i know it's another movie she's in that and that's all i got <clears throat> okay i'll give you a quarter point i guess there we it's, go uh, alex ross perry yes <laughs> queen of earth queen of earth that's right <laughs> so she had last year she had the kitchen uh, she was oh. in The Old Man and the Gun, uh, the series. She had stuff like On the Road, uh, Get Him to the Greek. Uh, the Square. Apparently she's in Girl Interrupted. Oh, The Square, yeah. She's yes. in The Square. Yeah, The Square. Yeah, that's I remember, I, I recently watched Girl Interrupted. I noticed her in it. On the Road, Gosh yeah. dang it. Okay, so Zach is up four and a quarter <laughs> to three. <laughs> Uh, we will. Well, I guess there goes the tiebreaker. <laughs> we will move on to Mike Nichols' directed movies, not including uh, that dolphin movie. <laughs> that dolphin T movie. Terry goes first. Including <laughs> that dolphin movie, uh, The Graduate. That's correct. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Correct. Charlie Wilson's War. That is correct. Uh, postcards from the Edge. Correct. A recent, recent Terry movie. Yeah, it was. Uh, closer. Correct. Uh, primary Colors. That's correct. I wouldn't have remembered that. I might be out. 
I don't know his filmography very well. Um, nothing. Nope, nothing. All right. Uh, so Zach, you are up six and a quarter to six. Uh, and you, you have a bunch of movies left. Okay, uh, Catch-22. That's correct. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that one. Silkwood, which I also mentioned. That's correct. Uh, does Wit count, even though it was made for TV? Yeah, I wrote it down. Okay. Um, did he also direct What Planet Are You From? No. Oh, okay. Oh, wait. Oh, wait, yeah, okay, there you go. Wait, oh, size. Yeah, okay, that is written on there. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's okay. correct. <laughs> um... And let me think if I can think of any more. Did he direct Wolf? That's correct. I don't Jack know that movie. And then um, there was another movie. I just looked it up because in prep for this podcast. I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it was a movie he did right after David Dolphin. And it's some bizarre, like, gangster movie, I believe, with Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson. But you don't have to give me a quarter credit for that. I just can't think of the name of it. But that's all I got. All right. Well... Uh, he directed Carnal Knowledge after that, but that's oh, not the one you're thinking of, obviously. Uh, no. Fortune, Guild Alive. The Fortune's what I was thinking. Heartburn, Biloxi Blues, yeah. Working Girl, Regarding <sighs> Working Henry, Girl. The Birdcage, and that's it. So he now... directed The Birdcage? Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that either, actually. <laughs> we are now looking at... I got his only two 21st century movies. <laughs> I think what planet, what planet were you from is from 20, 21st century. Not that anyone would oh, want, so would want to remember that. Wit so was, was 2001. I don't have the years written down in front of me, though. Okay, so our last category. So Terry's going to need to do some catching up. It is, yeah. So it's a 12 and a quarter to 6. And we are looking at, this is going to be a little bit of Oscar trivia, but a little abstract because that's the way I do things. And that is... We are looking at movies from 2000 to 2019 that were nominated for Best Film Editing, but not nominated for Best Picture. There was only 21. And, uh, so I guess we're starting with Zach. Uh, United 93? That is correct. The Bourne Ultimatum. The Bourne Ultimatum is also correct. And a winner in the category. Is that the only one that won that wasn't nominated for Best Picture? Uh, no, maybe not. No, there were three. Mm. To make it interesting, I'll give Terry an extra point for getting one that won. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are two other. There are two more. Nice. <laughs> um, Terry said the Born Ultimatum or Born Supremacy. The Bo- he says the Born Ultimatum. Ultimatum. Okay. Um. Man, this is a difficult question. Uh, King Kong? That is not correct. Uh, That's a good guess, though. That was a good guess. It's a respectable guess. guess. Although it shouldn't have ever been nominated for editing at three hours, but that's okay. (laughs) Well, it's a good thing it wasn't, right? Okay, Terry, you need uh, some help. Five more. Okay. Um. Okay. Uh. Memoirs of a Geisha. That is not correct. Gosh, I, it was nominated for like every tech though. 
Yeah, so it, won th it won three Oscars. Uh, yeah. You guys were at least doing the right thing by going in the 2000, 2009, because there were only four in the last decade because of the new rules, which were Itania, Baby Driver, Star Wars Force Awakens, and the winner in 2011, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The other oh, one, I knew that, too. The other yeah. ones were The Dark Knight, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Into the Wild, Blood Diamond, Children of Men, Cinderella Man, The Constant Gardener, Walk the Line, Collateral, City of God, Cold Mountain, tw 2001's Winter, Black Hawk Down, Memento, Almost Famous, and Wonder Boys, which is a weird nomination, as yeah, well as Cold Mountain. Make any sense. <laughs> so Zach is a winner. All right. That gets to pick movies for us to watch. Can't wait. <laughs> and you get to host. Zach, you actually get a host and you earned it this time. I know. It's exciting. I already think I know your movie, Terry, which has been mentioned earlier in this podcast, but um, we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah. Terry always wins All trivia right. and he's like, damn it, I want trivia and I have to come up with movies. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Okay. Uh, it's time to wrap this up. Quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Zach, you won. You gotta go first. Okay, my, uh, normally I do Roger Ebert reviews, but this time I'm gonna do a Gene Siskel review, his thumbs up review of Day of the Dolphin. And he says, ultimate, he gave a thumbs up, I can't believe it. Ultimate, not ironically, ultimately, the Day of the Dolphin works because of the values it celebrates and Scott communicates. The values are communication and love. In spite of their material, Nichols and Scott have given us a film that reminds us what love and care can do, not so much for the object of affection, but for the person who tenders it. On that level, the Day of the Dolphin is really a fable and you know what i think our podcast could also be described that way as a fable nice nice all right uh todd you're next all right my quote comes from the day of the dolphin and this is a little exchange that sort of uh describes my thoughts in the movie or sort of the end of it does fa and b must go fa stays with pa no pa and b or Fa and B go now. Pa not love Fa. Yes, Pa loves Fa and B. Ma loves Fa and B. Fa loves Ma. Everybody loves everybody. Now, for Christ's sake, let's get the hell out of here. That's exactly what I thought watching that scene. From Academy Award winner Buck Henry. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's great. That's awesome. All right. Uh, for my quote, I have two quotes. Uh, they both come from Yankee Doodle Dandy, and uh, they're two quotes that stuck in my head at, that really made me laugh, and I had to go with them. Um, so uh, the first one, uh, he uh, he's trying to convince someone to be in one of his shows, and so he he writes a song for them, and they're trying to convince uh, this person to let them to let him play it, and his partner goes, oh, "This should only take a minute, right?" And he says. Well, that depends on the encores. And so, yes. yeah, I thought that was a good line. And the other one is he comes home and he goes in the kitchen and he, and he smells. And he goes, hmm, is that ham or bacon? His wife says bacon. He goes, oh, good. Ham makes me self-conscious. <laughs> <laughs> Those are definitely Academy lines. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're great lines. All right, and that's it. That brings our podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening again. Subscribe, rate, review, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Answer you our question about podcast. Edward Herman's most famous role. 
Yes, that'll be coming up on Twitter as soon as this is posted. Uh, yeah, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora. I got to remember this whole list now because it's getting longer. Uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be back at you next week with a deep dive. Until then, have have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. <laughs>